the May 29th issue of uh, Newsweek magazine uh, this year carried an article in the religion section entitled An Inconvenient Woman. Uh, and it quoted from one of the Gnostic Gospels known as the Gospel of Mary, documents that we have learned we were written sometime in the middle to the late 2nd century and that were recently discovered in the Nag Hammadi scrolls in Egypt in 1945. In a Gospel known as the Gospel of Mary, they, this is what the article said. The Gospel of Mary depicts Mary as the leader of Jesus' followers in the days after his resurrection. In its telling, Jesus rises and vanishes after instructing his disciples to preach the good news about the realm or the kingdom. The exhortation makes them uneasy. Christ had died preaching that gospel. What was to save them from a similar fate? Mary, however, is serene. Do not weep and be depressed, nor let your hearts be irresolute, she tells them. Jesus, she says, has appeared to her in a vision where he gave her special knowledge of the soul's journey through mystical realms. She tells them that she will help them understand the true teachings of Christ. And in her words, in this gospel, what is hidden from you, I shall reveal to you. The article goes on to quote from the same gospel of Mary, the reaction of Peter and the other male disciples uh, to this supposed uh, installation of Mary in a lofty position. Peter, a wrathful man, takes a particular offense. Did he really speak with a woman in private without our knowledge, he asks. Should we all turn and listen to her? Mostly he is jealous, and quoting him again from the Gospels, did he prefer her to us? And uh, again in the Gospel of Mary, Levi, the other disciple whom we know as Matthew, supposedly followed with these words. I mean, it is there in the Gospel of Mary. Levi answered, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you are contending against the woman like an adversary. If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Now, I have absolutely no idea how many people read this Newsweek article, but we know that over 30 million people have read the Da Vinci Code. And Dan Brown, quoting almost exactly these same passages from the same Gnostic Gospels, basically advances the same thesis that God, Jesus handed over the leadership of the early church to Mary, installing her in a position above all the other apostles. And uh, males who were threatened like Peter and later church leadership have worked very hard to suppress all of this and to establish their own power position. <coughs> in fact, in the words of... Uh, and by the way, the article concludes, <coughs> Newsweek article concludes by saying, the role played by women in the early church was being erased. It wasn't long after Jesus' death that male church leaders took steps to subordinate women. And the article includes the Apostle Paul's writing in this attempt to subordinate women. As church teachings evolved, women took on a more sinister role and became the carriers of earthly sin. <coughs> And in Dan Brown's novel, in the mouth of Dr. T uh, Professor Teabing, who is a history expert, uh, he says this. History is always written by the winners. When cultures clash, the loser is obliterated and the winner writes the history books. Books which glorify their own cause and disparage the conquered foe. By its very nature, history is always a one-sided account. This, by the way, is a, is a cardinal doctrine of uh, the postmodern approach to history, which is known as deconstructionism. Look behind every writing for the power agenda, is, is, is if you want to put it in a nutshell. Now, as I said, Dan Brown took these ideas and has popularized them. <clears throat> and in addition, he has woven two other issues that all fit under this issue of gender. <clears throat> he has introduced the concept of the sacred feminine, <clears throat> goddess spirituality and worship. And then finally, he has also woven into all of this the issue of the sexual union between men and women as a means of connecting with God. 
So as we wrap up this three-part series on the Da Vinci Code and looking behind the historic, behind the uh, foreground fiction to the way he has fictionalized the background as well, I want to take a look at these three issues related to this uh, topic of uh, all having to do with gender issues. How did Jesus in fact hand over leadership of the church to Mary, and was it in fact ruthlessly suppressed by threatened males afterwards? Secondly. Uh, what about this whole issue of the sacred feminine? And thirdly, how, does, how, how, how is one supposed to think about this whole issue of sexuality and its expression in men and women? Let me begin with the gender issue. By the way, before I do that, I want to quickly dismiss this, uh, this one point about history being written by the winners. Because it is a red herring to our own cause. Uh, certainly it's possible. But the fact of the matter is, if, if Teabing is literally correct, that history is always one-sided and always written by the winners... Then, of course, that particular version of early church history that we find in the Gnostic Gospels would also become one more attempt to write history from the position of people who wanted to be winners just turned out to be losers. Therefore, you wouldn't have to believe that at all. And one rare moment of honesty in the book, Teabing actually says that, that they're all equally unreliable. Which, of course, pushed to its limits would make us all historical skeptics. And there are certain people who write on the philosophy of history who say that, that history is impossible to know. Everything is subjective. But most sane people do not take that approach. Most sane people recognize the fact that yes, there are biases. Yes, those biases can get into all kinds of works. But we have, in the normal scholarly process, checks and balances that are built in, especially something that is called peer review. And when enough peer review has taken place, there can be a reasonably objective knowledge of history that we can advance upon and continually correct if we need to. So I'm going to assume that you and I are mostly sane people when it comes to the issue of history. And so we will have nothing more to do with this business of uh, history being written by winners and losers and set that aside. Okay, let's get on with the issue of, uh, first of all, this matter of uh, Jesus handing over leadership of the church to Mary. Going back again to the Gospel of Mary, where she says this, uh, don't weep, don't be depressed. Jesus has given me special knowledge and I'm going to teach it to you. Now, you might remember that one of the things we've been learning in these three sessions about the Gnostic Gospels is that even, even those who are non-evangelical scholars, people like, and I've mentioned Dr. Karen King at Harvard as one of them, uh, who are kind of champions of Gnosticism as a whole, tell us that by and large these things, these dialogues and in, 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 things that happen between individuals are not to be primarily taken literally but metaphorically. Two weeks ago when we looked at the whole issue of Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene and in that passage from the Gospel of Philip where he is supposed to have kissed her often and she was a companion. We looked at that text from the Gospel of Philip. We saw first of all that the text was corrupted. 15 out of 26 words were missing and had to be supplied. But more than that, uh, I refer to Dr. Karen King's assessment that really it was more a metaphorical picture of the revelation of knowledge. That's what the, the, the metaphor of kissing was all about. Well, if that is true, and I think a good case can be made for that, then we need to interpret this as well. And this is where Dr. Karen King is not consistent with her own philosophy. Because really, this has nothing to do with male-female issues of leadership at all. Rather, it, has, it is a metaphorical description, most likely, of a battle that was going on in the 2nd century and went on right up until the 4th century between two modes of revelation. Which one was genuine revelation? That which was embodied in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And we learned last week that by the end of the first century, these had already been recognized, written and collated and recognized to be the core testimony to Jesus. Was that one source of revelation or was it the secret knowledge that the Gnostics claim came directly? 
And you need to know that this wasn't just a small little twist on Christianity. If you read what the Gnostics taught, let me give you one example. Our, the heart of our faith is the gospel, is the crucifixion and the resurrection after that. Well, in the Gnostic Gospels, there are two Jesuses on the cross. There's one who's on the cross who's dying, who's actually the physical body. And then there's the spiritual Jesus who's actually hovering over the cross and laughing. And the spiritual Jesus is telling these people in the Gnostic Gospels that I, I am the real one and I'm already in you. So this isn't just a little twist on the gospel. This is, this is a her, heretical doctrine. And so there was a battle going on and, and the early church fathers wrote against this. And so here, in this particular uh, deb- debate or dialogue between Mary and, and Levi and Matthew, if, if we follow their own edicts and interpret this metaphorically, it is a very metaphorical, pictorial representation of this battle that was taking place between two sources of knowledge in the early church. It had absolutely nothing to do with male versus female in leadership roles. That's the first thing we need to remember. And by the way, if we need uh, more proof, it comes right from within the Gnostic Gospels itself. For in the Gospel of Thomas, we find these words. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've got to admit that is hardly a ringing endorsement of the feminine. This is from the Gnostic Gospels themselves. Again, therefore, it makes a lot more sense to, to take it the way Karen King says it needs to be, that these need to be interpreted metaphorically as battles between two sources of revelation. So it wasn't the winners that won out men versus women. It just happened to be the fact that God took care of the fact that his truth was the one that was preserved in the creeds and all those other statements. A second strand in the argument that leadership was given over to Mary Magdalene came from this, uh, this phrase that you will often find in the writers of uh, especially radical feminism, that Mary Magdalene was referred to as the apostle of the apostles. And in which case, therefore, she was not just among the apostles, she was actually the apostle of the apostles, and therefore the one that Jesus established as, as the leader. Well, the pr- problem is, it is actually a, a phrase that is found in the writings of the early 3rd century church father named Hippolytus. And Hippolytus' phrase he actually used was apostle to the apostles, not apostle of the apostles. And the context in which he used it tells us there are two things we need to keep in mind. The context was resurrection day. And as we know from the Gospels, the first persons among the followers of Jesus to realize that the tomb was empty at least, were women. They were all women. And it was these women that went and told the men. And the more common use of the word apostle in that time was not this particular designation of these people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but the most common word simply meant those who were sent. So that if we send somebody, and we often send people from this church to the uttermost corners of the earth, they are in every, in this sense of the word, the more common sense of the word, apostles are sent ones. And therefore, if you look at Hippolytus' phrase in its context, he is referring to the fact that Jesus sent the women to go and declare to the, to the men what is the heart of the gospel. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up from the dead and made him Lord and Christ. And so to take that phrase in that context, apostle to the apostles, meaning sent ones bearing witness to the resurrection, and turn it into apostle of the apostles, implying female leadership over the apostles, was was a totally unwarranted jump. What it does emphasize, though, is that men and women, equally appointed and commissioned by Jesus Christ, to be witnesses to the core truth of the gospel. Christ crucified, 
Christ raised, Christ Lord. A third strand in Da Vinci's argument about female leadership has to do with Leonardo Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. For those of you who are not familiar with that painting, if you were looking at it from where you're sitting and the painting was there, Jesus is in the middle with what has historically been assumed to be his 12 disciples. And Da Vinci and Dan Brown says, if you were to look carefully on Jesus' right, which would be on your left as you look at the picture, leaning away from him is a figure that looks very different from the rest of the disciples. All the other disciples, as you would expect, have beards, uh, hairy skin, rugged features. Well, this particular individual is, uh, has no beard, uh, smooth skin, and effeminate features as well, and long flowing hair. And Dan Brown makes the astonishing claim that that's actually Mary Magdalene occupying his position as his wife, and we looked at that two weeks ago, and therefore having the prime position next to her, and again reinforcing this idea that she was the apostle of the apostles. Not only that, he says, this figure that is formed by her leaning away from him, if you look at it, is a letter V. And Robert Langdon, who in the novel is a symbologist from Harvard University, says the letter V is an ancient symbol of the feminine. And therefore, this was Leonardo da Vinci's hidden clue as to the fact that this person really was Mary Magdalene. Probably the most notorious of all the claims and among the most stupidest, I think. Just to show the total ignorance of history's witness to Leonardo da Vinci's painting on The Last Supper. First of all, it ignores the fact that it was customary to portray the Apostle John, which is who he has been understood to be for all this time. It was customary by all artists to portray the Apostle John without a beard, and with smooth skin, to underline the fact that he was probably the youngest of the disciples. Not only that, Leonardo da Vinci has a painting of John the Baptist that nobody mistakes for Mary Magdalene, that also does not, has long hair, has no beard, and smooth skin. And Dr. Robert Baldwin, who is a professor, associate professor of art history in the United States, says this, Since Leonardo da Vinci's time, this disciple has been understood as John. The feminine qualities of John in this painting stem from the artist's strong interest in androgynous, beautiful men. This interest in the feminized ideals of male beauty was also common in other Italian Renaissance artists at this time. So any one of these three major strands that Dan Brown weaves together to suggest to us that Mary Magdalene had been given the position of prime leadership in the church and a truth that was suppressed by threatened males afterward. There are a whole lot of other things that were wrong, and we'll come to that in a minute. But certainly this has no basis in history at all. Whether it is from that phrase, Apostle of the Apostles, whether it's from the quotations from the Gnostic Gospels about Mary having claimed secret wisdom, or whether it is from Da Vinci's painting of supposedly having Magdalene next to him. So, so much for that first trend. Now, in the book, after Robert Langdon points this out to this totally... Uh, ignorant but fascinated Sophie who's learning all these things for the first time. He says of Da Vinci's painting, it is an awesome tribute to the sacred feminine. So let me move to that second issue, the issue of the sacred feminine. On page 238 in the novel, Langdon says this to Sophie, the power of the female and her ability to produce life was once very sacred, but it posed a threat to the rise of the predominantly male church And so the sacred feminine was demonized and called unclean. It was man, not God, who created the concept of original sin, whereby Eve tasted of the apple and caused the downfall of the human race. Woman, once the sacred giver of life, was now the enemy. And Dr. Teabing later on says to Sophie, Mary Magdalene was a holy vessel. 
She was the chalice that bore the royal bloodline of Jesus. And we've already taken care of that problem. She, but this is the one I want to focus on. She was the womb that bore the lineage and the vine from which the sacred fruit sprang forth. Two passages that perhaps most clearly talk about the sacred feminine. What do we make of this? Well, there's one very simple and easy way to dismiss this nonsense that the power of the female and her ability to produce life makes her sacred. The fact of the matter is the woman has no power to produce anything apart from men. And men have no power to produce anything apart from women. So, if they are equally helpless when it comes to producing life apart from the other, what logic says that one of them, one of their powers has to make, make them sacred? Either make them both sacred or make them neither sacred. And the scriptures come a lot closer to that. And so that's the easiest way to deal with this stuff. This is the, basically this is what they call in the Latin a non sequitur. It doesn't follow from this statement that because women are able to bear children that they are sacred. Because they can't do it without men, men can't do it without them. So let's go and take a look at what the scripture says. In what sense do we understand men and women? Now certainly some religions have made uh, goddess spirituality and the worship of female feminine gods is rampant in many, many cultures. But Christianity and Judaism knows absolutely nothing of it, which is what Dan Brown claims. Brown claims that this is a part of the essential Judeo-Christian revelation and that's what I want to show to you is utter nonsense. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 where God created man and woman. He says, so God created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The theologians call, call this the, uh, the, the, the cultural mandate. There are at least three ways in which human beings, male and female, are presented as reflecting or bearing the divine image. And in that sense, they are sacred. Not in the sense that men or women need to be worshipped or should be worshipped, but in a sense that they are created uniquely to reflect God. Let me, what, let me briefly point out the three ways. First of all, it's interesting. The first thing he says, he created them in his own image, male and female. There's something about maleness and femaleness in relationship that reflects the divine image. If you read on in the creation story, you will find in the second chapter of Genesis that before God created Eve and brought him to Adam, there's a lot of things that Adam has to do. God tells Adam to name all the animals. We have no idea how many he created, how long they took. must have taken a pretty long time because he was seeing them all for the first time in many cases. And so, there's this whole process that Adam goes through in naming the creatures. But then we are given the clue as to why God made him do that. Not only was part of his lordship over the rest of creation, you have power over what you name. You know, we name our children and you know sometimes they are cursed with those names. Often they are blessed with those names. But there's hope and meaning and destiny in names. And so it was a very powerful divine act already participating in the divine act of naming and calling. And God didn't name the names. We are told that Lions are lions and tigers are tigers, I presume in the Hebrew language or whatever language Adam spoke. Because Adam chose it that way. God gave them that power. And then he comes to this conclusion. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And helper there, as I told you before, doesn't mean servant. It means someone perfectly suited and corresponding to them. So the part of God's purpose in this whole thing was to set him up for Eve. <laughs> and then when he saw Eve, we're not surprised how he reacted. We'll come to that in a minute. But he was obviously excited enough and the part of his excitement was and in the, the words in the opening says now at last, now at last 
someone so completely different from all the animal kingdom that I've seen. Someone so much like me and yet different enough than me that I'm no longer alone. It is that maleness and femaleness in relationship that reflects something about God. And the reason why it does so is because the Christian concept of God is unique. God is a complex being compared to you and me. And I don't mean just because he's infinite in terms of knowledge and things like that. Even in his very being, you and I are one persons in one being. And the biblical image uh, portrayal is that of God who is three persons in one being. Which has a tremendous implication for you and me today. Because it gives meaning to the word God is love. Every religion says God is love. But only the Christian concept of God makes sense of it. Because for somebody to be called loving, you need, there needs to be somebody else. Eh? How do you know so-and-so is loving if you're the only person alive in the face of the earth? How is God loving if God is the only person around? But the Bible tells us God is three persons in one being. God the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And by the way, when the Bible speaks about Jesus as God the Son, a term that is often so confusing or offensive even to our Muslim friends because it carries with it the sexual connotations that actually don't belong at all. At least part of, not the whole, but part of the understanding of Jesus as Son and God as Father is to drive home to them the fact that God was a God in relationship within the Trinity. There was love and communication in the Godhead before anybody was created. And so one essential part of creating humanity in His image was to build and reflect that relational image. That's why He says male and female. So in this first sense we are sacred, equally sacred. Because we bear men and women in a complementary relationship to one another. Equal in significance, equal in value, equal in worth before Almighty God. Reflecting the divine image. And then to these two people, because it says He blessed them and said to them. And He gave them two dimensions of that blessing. One dimension was to rule and subdue the rest of creation. This is a second sense in which they became uh, reflectors of the divine image. They became visible manifestations of the invisible God who was king over everything. God's supreme lordship over his kingdom was concretized and visualized in this first man and this first woman and all of humanity intended after that. So he said, you use now the faculties I've given you. I made you like me. I've given you reason. I've given you morals. I've given you personality. I've given you will. I've given you all of those things that have set you apart from the rest of this creation. Now use that to rule and subdue the rest of creation. And that does not mean what people today call the rape of the environment, which men have done because of the fall. But it has to do with harnessing creation for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. That's the second sense in which. And remember, it was given to them. It wasn't given just to the male or just to the female. It was given to this male and female in relationship, reflecting the divine image to rule and subdue creation for the benefit of humanity. The third way was the blessing of being fruitful. And that was to, because they were not only to rule and subdue the creation that God had made, he amazingly, just like he gave Adam the privilege of naming the animals, he said, now you guys are going to be used to fill. God could have continued to populate the earth by creating directly. But he gave to this first man and this first woman. He said, you now enter into me, part of me. And so the ability to have children and to propagate them, which comes from God, but nonetheless is a part of entering into the creator. It is in these threefold ways that Brown knows nothing about at all that Christianity sees male and female as equal in significance, in value and worth, intended to work together. And I will talk about one particular relationship in which this is supposed to happen, but it does involve more than that. Working together in a complementary fashion 
to be able to accomplish this other twofold mandate. The filling, which happens within the context of marriage, and then the ruling and the subduing, which happens in a larger community as well. So that's uh, the second dimension. And then the third one, as I said, is to uh, be, be fruitful and multiply. Now, before I move on to the third one, which has to do with the role of uh, sexuality in particular, I do need to deal with this issue where he says it was man, not God, who created the concept of original sin, whereby Eve tasted of the apple and caused the downfall of the human race. Woman, once the sacred giver of life, was now the enemy. Again, it is undeniable that certain church leaders, especially in the first four centuries and continuing after that, have in fact uh, done some of these things. But it's certainly not in the scriptures. The Bible does not anywhere speak about woman as the one the sacred giver of life, now becoming the enemy and tainted with original sin. Let me tell you, if you read the story, uh, first of all, the Bible says nothing about apples. So already, obviously, this is being written by someone who doesn't know the Bible at all. Yes, it was Eve who first transgressed God's commandment. But what Dan Brown either omits or knows nothing about is that in the very next verse, she gives it to Adam and he eats it too. But here's the significant thing. If you go on and read in a in, in few verses later, when God comes after them, he doesn't go after Eve. It's Adam. His first question is, Adam, where are you? And then Paul, the quintessential woman hater, according to radical feminism, in Romans chapter 5, when he read, writes about how the human race's downfall came, he doesn't mention Eve at all. He said, in Adam all sinned. Tell me something. If the Bible, written as it was in a patriarchal culture, was being written by the winners to put women down, why did they make Adam the fall guy? Why wouldn't they make Eve the fall guy? Because they're not, that's not their interest. So again, this stuff just doesn't, it's not the scripture, so don't let him mislead you at all. So we've taken care of this issue of female leadership being handed over to Mary. We've looked at this issue of uh, the sacred feminine and seeing how men and women together in relationship are sacred. Let me draw this message to a close by looking at the third strand, and that is this whole issue of, of sacred sex. On, uh, on page 309, uh, Robert Langdon says this to Sophie. For the early church, mankind's use of sex to commune directly with God, which he kind of takes for granted there, posed a serious threat to the Catholic power base. It left the church out of the loop, undermining their self-proclaimed state as the sole conduit to God, for obvious reasons, they worked hard to demonize sex and recast it as a disgusting and sinful act. Other major religions did the same. Now, I have no idea what other major religions do to the sex issue, but I do know that it's Christian faith well. And the scriptures do nothing of the kind. Yes, again, we have to acknowledge that from the writings of certain early church fathers, they, they came pretty close to this. In fact, they didn't think very much of marriage to some of them. But the fact of the matter is the scriptures... The scriptures nowhere demonize sex or recast it as a disgusting and sinful act. Let me therefore give to you once again the biblical picture of how it sees sex in this broader context of the cultural mandate and this, this male-femaleness as reflecting the image of God. You'll find in the scriptures in chapter 2 that after God made Eve and brought her to Adam, this is how he responded. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and this is this at last. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, whatever else was involved in Adam's fairly, maybe more than fairly excited response, and certainly some of it must have been the huge contrast between Eve and the rest of the animal kingdom, it certainly involved what comes to our mind first in this society when we think of a man and a woman naked before each other. You can't deny that. Here's the interesting thing though. They weren't alone. Oh yeah, there were no human beings around at that time. And maybe a few curious animals. But there was one other person who was present there. God. God himself was present there. So tell me, does that sound dirty and demonized or holy and sacred? That should be a no-brainer. So those kinds of statements are made by people who have the foggiest notion of what the scriptures teach. So whatever church leaders did later on, and some of them did, the scriptures never portray sex as dirty and disgusting and something to be demonized. Quite the opposite. But precisely because it is divine, because it it helps us to procreate, Precisely because it is divine, it is powerful. It is probably the most powerful urge that human beings experience. Now, I know there are certain periods of time where other drives, hunger, thirst, worry, anxiety, a whole bunch of other agendas can drive sex completely out of our minds. But it will always come back. It is usually the most strong abiding in one form or another uh, thing that drives human beings. And because it is so powerful, while it is divine, God prescribed certain boundaries within which it needs to be enjoyed as well as used for procreation. That's what verse 24 is talking about when it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to a cleave. Leaving and cleaving in the Bible were covenant terms. They were terms that were used when people entered into a covenant. I've, I've spoken to you before on the difference between covenants and contra- uh, contracts. All we have is contract. We've got contractors with all kinds of contracts running around this church these days. Why do we have contracts? Because we don't know the people. You have contracts when there are no relationships and there's no mutual trust. In fact, the less the relationship, the more the fine print. But covenants were not based on... They were based on the opposite. Covenants were based on committed relationships. They involved a commitment set in the context of loyalty permanently. They were gracious, unconditional, and everlasting. If you look at the God's covenants. And marriage was intended by God to be that kind of a relationship. Not a contract with prenuptial agreements and all that kind of stuff. That's what happens today because they don't trust each other. It's not based on love. It's based on lust. It's based on what you're going to get, not what you're going to give. But Christian marriage has always been from the very beginning a covenant relationship and that's why couples make vows or should make vows in public because those vows are not just nice wishes on a nice day when everything is making you feel good. They're actually for the days when you don't feel good about your marriage. They are the terms of a binding covenant before Almighty God that are to be rooted in a lifelong loyalty marked by grace an unconditional and permanent commitment to the other person. It is only in that context that this unbelievably powerful and sacred thing called sex can meet its real fulfillment. 
both in terms of pleasure as well as in terms of procreation. Because the children that you procreate need that kind of a relationship in which to fast, in which to flourish and come to their full potential so they can become men and women made in the image of God. You see, this union between man and woman involves far more than the physical relationship. Uh, when it talks about they will become one flesh. And when the one flesh is linked to nakedness, we almost always think only of sex. That's the kind of society we live in. But the one flesh union represented the union of two whole people. Nakedness without shame is, is a picture of vulnerability without any risk. It's a total knowledge of two people completely. At the level of intellect, at the level of emotion, at the level of uh, spirit above all. And as I've said to you before, the sexual intimacy is an expression of an intimacy that we share in the other areas. And if you don't have intimacy in the other areas, you can't make love. That's why making love is a euphemism that is thoroughly unbiblical. You can't make it. You can only express it if it's there in the other dimensions of your life. You see, it kind of works this way. I want to put it in the form of a picture. Uh, this is how it works for me. It, if it helps you, good. If not, come up with your own picture. But the idea is what the Bible says. We're talking about sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is an expression of growing intimacy between two persons, which requires vulnerability. And vulnerability is risky in a fallen world, and therefore it requires trust. And trust requires a long-term commitment. That's why sexual intimacy and long-term commitment are always tied together in this thing called marriage. Outside of this structure, it will never accomplish the purposes that God intended for it. So this, this, this issue of purity outside of marriage and uh, faithfulness inside is not something that has been cooked up by a prudish God or someone who has demonized sex. This is how our designer intended it to work. Wrench it outside of this relational context and this lifelong commitment and it is always going to go wrong and become destructive. By the way, once you understand this, you can see how, what nonsense all his comments about sacred sex is all about. About sex as a means of communing with God. He writes in his book about this uh, ritual known as Hieros Gamos. And if you read what some of the critics have written about it, he, he, he paints this picture of, of, of this kind of thing that appeals to the modern mindset, but completely omits all of the horrible things that accompany it in the many cultures that practice those kind of, including cannibalism and rape and all those things as well. Well, that's exactly to be expected when you wrench it out of the context that God put it in. So as I said, doesn't matter what the church leaders have done. God intended sex to be something that is pure, something that is good, something that is holy. But because it is powerful, he clearly established the boundaries and gave us guidelines within which it will be powerful and enjoyable rather than destructive. Let me close this series as, uh, with getting back to Brown's real agenda, which is where we started. Teabing says to Sophie and Robert Langdon near the end, Yes, the clergy in Rome are blessed with a potent faith. And because of this, their beliefs can weather any storm, including documents that contradict everything they hold dear. But what about those who are not blessed with absolute certainty, meaning ordinary people like you and I? What about those who look at church scandals and ask, who are these men who claim to speak the truth about Christ and yet lie to cover up the sexual abuse of children by their own priests? What happens to those people if persuasive scientific evidence, which is what he now claims all his stuff on the Gospels and Constantine and all the things we've looked at, what happens to those people if persuasive scientific evidence comes out that the church's version of the Christ story, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is inaccurate and that the greatest story ever told is in fact the greatest story ever sold? I said to myself, good question, but which story has been sold? And let me quickly summarize what we've learned over the last three weeks. 
We've learned that Jesus Christ was not married to Mary Magdalene. We've learned that the Gnostic Gospels were written about 100 plus years after the canonical Gospels and therefore are much less historically reliable or accurate. They ought to be interpreted metaphorically and not literally. We learned that the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were accepted from a very early time as a core testimony to Jesus and not at Nicaea in 325. We learned that Jesus was worshipped as God well before Nicaea and Constantine. Today we've learned that the Gnostic Gospels do not teach that Jesus handed over the leadership of the church to Mary Magdalene, but it was actually a power struggle between two sources of teaching, uh, of truth. The concept of the sacred feminine is totally off base both logically and theologically. And finally, human sexuality is not demonized by the Bible, but is sacred and divine and is clearly limited to the covenant relationship of marriage for it to be experienced in all of its beauty without any of its destructive power. You can judge which was the greatest story ever sold. We've been talking about gender today and uh, some of the false claims uh, related to those issues. But if there's any part of Brown's novel that comes close to the truth, it's in that area. Because it is an undeniable fact that through the history of the church, male leadership in the church and in the home uh, has failed to distinguish themselves by following Christ. Some of the quotes from some of these same early church fathers that I respect for other areas make me cringe because I love the women in my life and in this church. So I want to share this blessing today just for the women in this congregation. So if you will all stand up. It doesn't matter what your age is, if you stand up. And I'll have the men simply join me in your mind and heart as I bless you. And I want to bless you with two gifts. First one may not look like a gift, but it is. And that is to provide you an opportunity to forgive. Because you need to forgive not because the people who have hurt you need it, You need it to be free. And then secondly, I want to bless you positively. So I want to stand today. I want to stand here today on behalf of uh, men in your life in various ways who may have hurt you, disenfranchised you, marginalized you, minimized you, discounted you, held you back in any way, shape or form. For those of you who have had fathers who have not loved you, nourished you, supported you and not blessed you, Fathers who may have abused you verbally, physically, emotionally. I stand in their step and ask you to forgive me on their behalf. For those of you who are married and who have, have or had husbands who have done the same. Who have discounted you, neglected you, diminished you. Who have treated you as if you didn't count. Who have hurt you. As a husband, I want to stand in their place and ask you to forgive me for that. For those of you women who have had male bosses at work who have diminished you, who have subjected you to sexual harassment and innuendos, you have been subject to having to see pornography displayed in the offices and each time you have felt defiled. For all of you who have had experiences that way at the hands of human bosses, I ask you to forgive me in their place. For the kind of addiction to pornography And the visual dimensions of sex that have demeaned women. And then lastly, the one that I can most closely do with uh, even more feeling. Not that I don't feel the others. Is for all of you who have been mistreated in local churches by church leadership. Who have been marginalized. Whose gifts have not been recognized. Who have been held back. Not been encouraged or motivated or liberated. 
I stand as a church leader before you and ask you to forgive us. I'm going to be quiet for a minute until and to let you give you space to let these things go. And now will you allow me to bless you? And I don't want to forget the women that are right behind here as well. Three words came to my mind. Equip, motivate, and liberate. I want to free you to get yourself equipped. Never, never think of yourself as not being qualified. Get yourself equipped with the gifts that God has given to you. Avail of the opportunities. I bless you with the motivating power of the Holy Spirit. May he cause you to believe that you as women were intended to function as vice regents in this creation of God. And I liberate you. You are free to use your gifts joyfully for the blessing of this church, the blessing of humanity and the glory of God. Go in Jesus' name.